Welcome to episode 101 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by Courtney Nguyen once again. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. It feels like a, a rebirth. It does, right? Like we're sort of starting lap two finally. A little bit, yeah. And we sputtered a little bit across the finish line of the first lap, and now we have second wind, and I feel good about it. Square one. I like it. It does. It feels fresh. I do. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like, okay, we've got, I feel like episode 100 was hanging over our heads for a little too long. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad that's out of the way. And now we can just, we can just move forward and trudge along I'm... and somehow hopefully hit number 200. And I'm happy with 100. People, yeah. people have liked it. If you haven't listened to it, you should, folks. It's pretty great. I think, we think, everybody thinks. So, or most people, I'm sure people don't like it also, but you know, forget them. But 101, we have plenty of stuff. It's not a letdown show content-wise, I don't think, in terms of just actual things that happened in tennis. Things happened. Nothing will happen. I mean, like, why wouldn't a Fed Cup, you know, world group playoff be, draw ceremony be inspiring for an episode? Why wouldn't it be? So (laughs) on this show, we're going to talk about Novak Djokovic winning Monte Carlo. Uh, his continued dominance. We're also going to talk about Fed Cup happenings in the semifinals and various World Group playoffs, including, notably, uh, the non-handshaking of Jeannie Bouchard, which got all sorts of attention on the tennis internet this weekend. We're also going to talk... We're also going to do Drag Slay coming back. Pretty excited about that. First one in a while. And we'll rant, rave, and take questions along the way, and it'll be cool times. You ready, Courtney, for 101? Darn ready start with Novak Djokovic who won Monte Carlo for the second time Novak Djokovic beat Thomas Burditch in the final not a great final kind of ugly but he impressively and routinely beat Rafael Nadal 6-3 6-3 in the semifinals cruised all the way there Djokovic has now won the last six big tournaments there's not really a cool name to catch all of them but going back to Bercy Paris Bercy Masters World Tour Finals, Australian Open, Indian Wells, Miami, Monte Carlo, six in a row. And that's the longest streak of that sort of designation anyone's ever had in the ATP. So breaking news, Courtney Novak Djokovic, good at tennis. Very good at tennis. Very good at tennis. And I was thinking about it today as I was writing up my thing off of the final um, about how because he hasn't had like the 41 match win streak to start the season that he did back in 2011 – there hasn't been like a statistical hook that has really forced people to recognize and understand what exactly Novak Djokovic is doing right now. Because what he's right. doing is really incredible. But it's very like inside tennis, right? Because we have to talk about it. And people can understand win streaks and being undefeated. Yeah. But it's hard to be like, so in tennis, they're like slams and there's this thing called the masters and then like so novak's won like all of the last six of those combined things yeah i totally you know? agree like, it's, easy, it's easier to sell serena this year in some way yep. because even though she hasn't won nearly as much as novak has yep. exactly like you can say yeah. you can say like well serena hasn't lost a match this year and people are like oh right. right so so in that way i feel like what novak's doing is kind of under the radar a little bit i don't think that on the whole people are appreciating it as much and when you really look down at the details of what he's done 
it's remarkable because and what's really impressed me and I think I've said it on the podcast before is that it's not just that he's creaming everybody which he did in in 2011 and in 2011 arguably he was even more dominant because he was like I mean what was that six and oh against Rafa and and beating him in like six finals which is crazy and Rafa wasn't even playing like crap like it was it was a pretty good Rafa it was a good Rafa year and Novak was still dominating him all these sorts of things like he was just winning and winning really like straightforward matches like he was so dominant in 2011 2015 he's actually scarier and to me i feel like he has more of a shot of actually doing like the the grand slam this year let alone completing the career slam at the french simply because even when he's playing like crap he's winning like it, it, it he's finding a way to fight through that so it's not even just yeah. that he's like zoning for three months or six months and feels sustainable. Yeah, I this guess. is sustainable. Yeah. yeah, I don't feel like he's playing outside of himself. Whereas back in 2011, it really felt like, where the hell is this coming from? This time, it's like, no, that's just Novak's like B level, B to B plus level can win Masters titles easily. Yeah, and even when he wobbles, he still believes he can get through. So that's, I mean, tip my cap. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable. I'm not going to say that he's the French Open favorite yet, but I mean, we're still five weeks away from Paris, but. Um, he's definitely racking up the statistics and the numbers to make me believe that that might be true. I will, I will say he's the French Open favorite, and I will say in terms, in terms of measuring his, I think the odds makers say the same thing at this point. Uh, I'm sorry that you're so so caught up in it all, but we'll, I will say that for Djokovic, he if you want a statistical hook, he now has the biggest lead anyone's ever had at the number one ranking. Um, he will lead on Monday by five thousand four hundred sixty points which is just like 35 points bigger than the previous record that Nadal had um, back in 2010. It should be noted that this is after ranking point inflation. No, that yeah, doesn't yeah, include, I mean, yeah. the, the ranking points have changed as a system uh, no, that's, that's true. post 2009. So I'm pretty sure, yeah. at least I saw a tweet from Andrew Burton, who knows these sorts of things uh, on Twitter, big Federer fan who uh, <laughs> was aware of some lead that Federer had over Rafa at some point before the inflation that if you calculate the inflation with something like 7,000 points. Yeah, so, no, I, be- I believe that. Yeah. I mean, the, I did the kind of story a, about yeah. joke about Nadal having fewer ranking points now than any time. And so I sort of correct, you know, adjusted for inflation, the past stuff. And yeah, like it used to be like 500 points for winning a Masters. So right. and 1,000 for winning a Slam. So the whole thing has changed. More weighted towards the Slams now than before. Right. So, But at least yeah, within so, the post-inflation period, this is the biggest gap. No doubt. Right. And in this, in this sort of golden peak of golden era quote unquote whatever if we're still in that which is debatable maybe so speaking of Djokovic we got a bunch of questions about him that I will propose to you in some random order let's start off with this one from uh, Robert Silverstein who asks in terms of marketability is Djokovic's current dominance good for the game parentheses especially when opposed to Roger or Rafa's dominance Ugh, good for the game that's such a tough. Uh... Can I answer this first, then? Yeah, go not. for it, because I, I, I find that complicated. Think it's great. I completely think it's great for the game in terms of selling the sport, in terms of getting people hooked on tennis and bringing it outside the realm of just tennis and nerddom. You need a story that you can package, especially if he gets the French Open title. You, we need calendar slam intrigue in tennis badly. We haven't had it in forever, even just the basic. Aussie French double like people people talked about this before but we haven't had it since Capriati on the women's side and Courier on the men's side so if Djokovic can do that that's when he becomes a really 
mainstream, at least in America, he's bigger elsewhere, but becomes a known person in American sports. He gets to be, you know, have a legit shot at something like Sportsman of the Year if he wins a calendar slam. And you need to get that sort of threshold of exceptionalness in tennis to make it relevant. It's just the stakes, it's the uphill climb that the sport was dealt. So for me, absolutely dominance, always better for, quote unquote, the game, especially when it's somebody uh, like him who's not a complete fluke. Yeah, no, I I get that. I I think there's a lot to, I mean, I, 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 we've talked about this before on the podcast that I personally, as an individual, don't really respond to dominance narratives never have i just don't Mm -hmm. find them to be completely compelling but i do recognize now being within the writing side of things that yeah it plays people really like it now doesn't it matter though who's doing the dominating i think it does and i think that on that level for novak he's still just we all know this it's not a secret he still hasn't broken through to kind of be on that level, that equal playing field from a marketability standpoint as a Federer and an adult. And it's not his fault, necessarily. It, it's it's just Rafa and Federer have very entrenched uh, markets. They're, they're very dugged in. The, the barriers to entry are titanic in a lot of ways to try and break through that. So it's just kind of a shitty situation for Novak on every level because he's doing everything. And it's almost like, what can't, I mean, what can he do more to make himself likable um, and to make himself marketable? Can I answer that question? Sure. Even if it's, I think he can win more. Like, I, I think the thing with Federer and at all is they both had easily framed, you know, stats or tags with them. Like Federer was winning everything when he broke on and became a huge star. Was number one forever. All these Wimbledons, which is what matters most for sort of marketability, and U.S. Open, which is big for that too. Uh, Nadal made his sort of niche as a sort of king of clay person, had insane stats on that. Djokovic hasn't, except for 2011, when he won a lot of matches in a row, the streak, hasn't had a comparable sort of calling card. Yeah, that's fair. And, I mean, And if he can get the get towards the Grand Slam, he can get that. Yeah. And he needs that. No, I agree with that, that as much as we celebrate what Novak Djokovic has been doing for the past, you know, six months or so, at the same time, you look at what his Masters success is over, like, what does he have now? The same number of Masters titles as Roger, Roger. or something, mm-hmm. right? And he's obviously yeah. so much younger. But at the Slams, he hasn't really gotten close to where he you would expect him to be given that master's hall and what he does outside of the majors so i think you're right there that maybe maybe the 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 tide shifts you know if he if he starts breaking through and just racking up slams i think you are right that that does change things quite a bit so maybe i'm i'm selling that short because i'm basing it on just what he's done in the past which what he would which is precisely right he needs to change that which is breakthrough at the majors i just think it's all been all been spread out a bit too much yeah i agree it's it's, it's just like especially in the one place where it is clumped is australia and it's the slam that no one cares about it's the least cared about slam and the one that's away from when people care about tennis in the in the year calendar uh yeah so i think that just again through no fault of his own he hasn't peaked and dominated at quite the right times to orchestrate a perfect storm of celebrity and enthusiasm and all that stuff. We got another a bunch of other questions, which are good. Here is one from Vikesh, which I think is interesting. And it's something we haven't talked about much on the show, I don't think. Vikesh asks, do you think Djokovic would be doing as well and as consistently as he is right now without Boris Becker? <laughs> I can't quite work it out, to be honest. And I will say Djokovic is playing really well now, arguably his best ever. And Boris has gotten 
little to no credit. Yeah, it for, seems from the from the punditry, people don't want to take him seriously. Yeah, for for a punditry who is w- willing to give credit to anyone immediately because everybody's yeah. looking for cause and effect, right? Like you look at Madison makes a semifinal and Lindsay Davenport's like in the running for Coach of the Year. Yeah, no one really wants to take Boris seriously on this whole thing, and yeah, I, it's hard to know, you know, in terms of of the amount of credit that Becker should receive. I think that Djokovic is just that good. I I don't think that he necessarily that a Becker spurred him on that extra 5%. My read of it is that just over time, given his skill set and given the kind of gap for growth that existed for him, it was almost like a natural progression in a lot of ways for him to get here. Now, that being said, maybe for Novak, having a Becker in his corner, it was like having a Lendl in Andy Murray's corner. Like it wasn't necessarily about, yeah, okay, he told me to hit my forehand more in Lendl and Murray's case, but a lot of it was just, for Murray, I think having an Ivan Lendl believe in him. Yeah. You know, I think that that can go a long way in terms of maybe giving you that extra piece of the puzzle. But I mean, so many, there have been more than a few times where Becker has kind of given his tactical read on an upcoming match or a past match. And you're like, that doesn't sound right at all. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, no, I hope you're not telling taken, Novak that. <laughs> he was never taken seriously as a commentator when he was with BBC because he was pretty bad as a commentator, yep. just not insightful. I think everyone would agree those are fair statements. Um, the winning has been great. And if it just helps Djokovic having someone who's been there, you know, who can sort of be like, okay, you know, I was in this big match in 94 and I did this, this, and this. That helps, fine. And he is serving well. That's the one thing that you could maybe trace back to Becker a little bit. His serve has become more of a weapon, and steadier. Yeah, and His volleys game. are be- much better now. Yeah, so those are those are little, you know, percentile upticks in Djokovic's game, but they could make the difference between winning and losing in any given tennis match. Not that Djokovic's margins have been small this year, but it helps. Um, and I also just think in terms of Becker, you sort of said this before, but I just think the tour with how the rest of the big four were sort of going to be moving in the sort of biorhythms of their career, I think this was always a probable time for a Djokovic upswing. I just think the competition, and you can get to ATP depth or whatever if you want, it's not at its best right now either. Yeah. Rafa has question marks. Sure. Federer's 33 years old. Murray is still slowly making his way back, although he's pretty much back at this point, I think, in terms of where he was pre-slam winning. Um, you know, it's not... At its most imperious form, and Djokovic is. He's the only one playing his best right now of the sort of established elite players. So yeah, the, C- I think the, the seas have open. yeah the seas have parted. Yeah, for him uh, to have this sort of level of dominance and stuff like that. So there is uh, yeah, there's something to be said about that. Last question I'll do on Djokovic from Ben Shapiro uh, asks, what would be more impressive, uh, Djokovic? Winning all, or I guess anybody, but let's talk about Djokovic. Winning all four slams in one year, or winning all nine Masters in one year. He's three out of nine. No one's ever done that before. No one's ever won the first three uh, of the year, which is actually surprising. It was surprising when I saw that, but no one ever has. So, if you had to pick Courtney, which would be the more impressive feat? The majors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it goes back to what we were discussing a few minutes ago. Novak needs to win at the majors. Like, we know he can win masters. And he has the ability to pull off the nine for nine. He totally does. But uh, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, in the big grand scheme of things, in terms of his career and what he wants to accomplish and what would elevate him into the conversation of an all-time great, win the freaking majors. 
win all four of them in one year and you are smack dab in that conversation like the conversation you drive it you win nine nine majors congratulations you won t- tournaments that only tennis fans care about you know what I mean? I just, like, it, no, I, can, I, I, I totally that. get that it's like a, it, it, it would be an incredible feat. I don't mean to like undermine it at all, especially because I think there is a genuine argument that it's harder to win masters or back to back masters than it is to win a major. Yeah, I would agree. With that. You know, so I do. I think that intellectually and from a total tennis nerddom perspective, there is a very strong and legit and maybe I will buy it in a few months argument that it is the greatest feat in the history of tennis. <laughs> but I think specifically for Novak. He needs to win majors. He doesn't need more Masters titles. In terms of impressive, I mean, like, in tennis, as we may know, as someone might have pointed out to us uh, after she won Wimbledon, like, saying that somebody won Roman Madrid is not a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) So, and the same with Wozniacki. I mean, no one's going to – Wozniacki would certainly answer this question. Well, maybe it depends on how defensive she was feeling. But she would certainly take one slam over four Masters-type equivalent tournaments. In terms of technical difficulty – Maybe winning all those Masters is tougher, especially because they're not the tournaments you're trying to peak for. Right. You know? So if Djokovic's goal was to win all nine Masters, and he did it, okay. But his goal is to win the French. And so if it comes time where he is, he wins Madrid and feels exhausted, you know, I could see him, he should at that point pull out of Rome to pr- protect his French Open chances. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll see. I, in terms of technically, yeah, I think going nine for nine is tougher. Uh, without the days off, especially some of the doubles you have to pull off in terms of Real Madrid, India Wells, Miami, even like Shanghai, Paris. Yep. It's not an easy turnaround, different conditions. So, yeah, I would say that. But Djokovic, I'm pretty sure, would want the the slams. And also Toronto, Cincinnati. And Cincinnati is the one he doesn't have yet. So if he could just win two more tournaments this year, and they were the French and Cincinnati, I think he'd be a pretty happy dude. I think so, too. And I think that it's also important to point out, because I was thinking about this today, watching Fed Cup and thinking about Davis Cup and everything. The Masters are great. Obviously, if you won all nine Masters, phenomenal. But don't we also kind of, one of the reasons why the majors are elevated and why they're majors is 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 that you know for a fact that everyone wants to win them. Like everyone exactly. is like killing themselves to win it. So if you go into like the Paris indoors in Bercy and no one gives a shit because they're playing the World Tour Finals the week later, like that decreases the degree of difficulty of winning that particular masters tournament yeah we haven't had a devalued slam in a long time right like since the since the australian or the french were readily skipped by a lot of people. exactly the french would be clo- yeah exactly that would be back in the day but yeah otherwise i think that so that's an issue right and and you yeah. see that obviously in fed cup like how important is fed cup if no one gives a shit like if the top players don't want to play it same with davis cup so if like netherlands is in world group exactly yeah, yeah exactly so you know i mean in that way i think that again that's kind of the 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 feather in the the pulling off the career slam cap as being a, a more resonant and impressive feat right so like we said i think everything will pretty much come like we knew all year long Everything will come down to the French Yep. for Djokovic in terms of determining if his year is, oh my God, so great. Look at this superstar transcending everything or, eh, you know, same old, same old for tennis. Yeah. So, so you said Djokovic is not the favorite in your mind. Do you think, are you picking Nadal right now to win the French? I, Nadal, Nadal to me is always the favorite to win the French until there's enough data for me to be able to say no. And the thing about it is, and the reason why I still am hesitant to say that Novak is the favorite to win it is that 
we saw this last year. Now, Rafa, I genuinely didn't think Rafa had a chance to win the French Open last year, given his lead up. And he looked poor and he looked like he didn't have any confidence and uh, all these sorts of things. And and he still went through and like blitzed the field and then, you know, eked Novak out in the final. So I think that that run in particular, for me personally, like kind of not taught me a lesson, but it definitely go into this year seeing, yes, Rafa's struggling. Yes, he may go into the French Open without a clay court European clay court title under his belt. He could get that would his be ass shocking. Yeah, but yeah. he he could get his ass handed to him by Novak, you know, every single time or just whatever. Ferrer is obviously playing great on clay, etc. His so, Barcelona draw is tough. Yeah, I haven't even taken a look yet, but yeah, he gets like he gets uh, Almagro first potentially, and then like Fanini second. Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, it's very possible that he goes in, and yet still best of five just what he's i mean it's very hard to ignore 10 years of results no you know and i, I think and i and i do get the sense that there is a little bit of every it's the same thing that happened with Federer. it's this rush of like everybody wants to be right everybody wants to be like the first guy to call it like see i told you back in you know the beginning of april that that dude was gonna like you know suck in paris and then he loses in the second round it's like well congratulations you were right but i don't know for me personally i just would I would rather be wrong by saying that Rafa's going to win it and have him not win it than be like Rafa's gonna, like just an absolutely terrible tennis player right now. And then he goes and busts through the draw again like that. It would be me just doing the exact same thing I did last year, which would be dumb. Yeah, I remember being last year I was on the fence. I mean, it was much closer between the two because they, they had each won one clay masters and stuff. And Rafa wasn't results wise bad from as as bad as he was this year. Um, but he's hold on we're only final. talking about clay one like you're talking about a, a distinct like set of results no, on I mean, clay we only have one clay tournament under our belt. i'm not even talking i'm not talking about clay i'm talking like previous 12 months like going into last year's french open rafa had was the reigning champ at the u.s open he was then made a final in australia he had more pet in his recent not long-term recent results than he does this year um I, I picked, but and I did was sort of I was picking Djokovic, but not emphatically, up until the semifinals when Rafa killed, killed Murray, and then I was like, oh yeah, Rafa's gonna win this again, and because he hadn't shown quite that sort of dominant form until that point, and then he did win the final. But that's the thing um, with him is that it just takes one match, and he's and yeah. he gets locked in like, and I just yeah. like I'm saying it's five weeks away, it's not like the French Open is next week. If it, if the French Open was next week, I would pick Novak to be the favorite hands down but like right now like it's like dude there is not enough data points not for me personally not on clay there's just not enough yet and i think that with rafa you just never know with him on this surface any other surface yeah totally like write the guy off but given what he's done but on this surface i don't know it just seems it just seems hasty and to me it's just it's it's a little it's premature it just doesn't the call doesn't need to be made right now it, it, there's just not enough all right, I'm picking Novak, and we'll let us know what you guys think. Write us on Twitter, wherever. Send off who you got. Well, this will be a theme, obviously, for the rest of the clay court lead-up. People, this is the big question because I think this is. I think it's fair to say, at least the most interesting in terms of who will win French Open in ten years. So, more so yeah. than last year. Yeah, of course. Why Novak is, is such a, Novak is such a bigger threat this year than last year. He's playing so much better. I don't disagree. I just. I mean, last year it was, I felt like when we came to Paris, it was still split. So never mind. I mean, I just think but, that like, I don't know. I, that's a little, I think last year was just as big as this year. 
Okay. Well, let us know what you think about all that stuff um, as we move on to the ladies. So, Fed Cup happened this weekend. Uh, one of the three, I guess, weeks of the year with Fed Cup, which are spaced out sort of absurdly in the calendar. It was the two semifinals with the Czech Republic doing what it does, which is winning indoor ties in the Czech Republic. This time they beat France in Ostrava, Rio. Uh, the French won a dead rubber doubles, which shouldn't count in the score, but it does. So 3-0, 3-1 with an asterisk for the, for the Czechs with Petrik Vidova coming back and uh, looking in good form there. And in Sochi... Uh, Russia beat Germany 3-2, uh, led 2-0 after day one, and then won it in the doubles. Uh, we'll get more into that one details later, but anything first stand out to you about these these ties, Courtney? And the, you know, Czech-Russia final we're going to get in Prague, presumably in November, seven months from now? Total fail by Germany. Yeah. Total awful. fail. And here's the thing about it. So, I mean, in terms of background, Germany gets to Sochi, you know, obviously Kerber and Pekovic are playing great after Charleston, Miami, etc. They make their way there. They t- the story is they they are exhausted from the trip over and also all the matches that they've played in the last few weeks. So a team decision, team meeting is made. The decision is put in Lasicki uh, and Gergis on day one in singles. And if that is the case, this is this is my argument. If that is the case that. For str- and this is pretty much everybody that I that I've talked to that was like on the ground in Sochi. This is the story coming out of there, is that yes, Petkovic and Kerber were wiped. They were physically wiped. They were not in a position to be taking the court to play. If that's the case, then fine. I mean, Rittner was screwed either way. She had to go with Lisicki Gergis, roll the dice, hope that they could get one point give the girls an extra day of rest, have them come in, win the next two, and then you go three because you, you get your three points. You can't go to doubles against the Russians. The Russians are going to win. So if that's the case, fine. That's just bad luck for the Germans. But if this was some weird calculated gamble, it was really dumb. It was so dumb. So freaking dumb. So dumb. Th- I can't here's even. The, here's I can't. the thing. Like, I was expecting before this happened, I wasn't putting a lot of thought into this, but I was expecting them to, to play Lasicki Kerber on day one. Yep. You know, Lisicki is a top 20-ish player, top 20, somewhere around there now. She's had a great, very quietly, a pretty great run since Wimbledon last year. Uh, definitely moving up slowly in terms of being a solid year-round player, which is kind of new for her. Doing well. And Kerber hasn't played a whole lot of matches except for Charleston this year. Yep. Because she's been losing so much. So she get and she only played one day later in Charleston than Petkovic. So I thought, you play Kerber Lisicki, you get Kerber's win pretty much for sure. And Lisicki is a coin flip. And Lisicki was a coin flip. I think she had... She had match point. She had match point, yeah. So that was a coin flip match, pretty much, for her. And Pavlyuchenkova. And Pavlyuchenkova, yeah. So they both... uh, But Gerges is so much lower. So much, like, 50 ranking spots lower than either Pekovic or Kerber. And then you put Pekovic and Kerber both in on Sunday, and they roll like crazy. They drop a combined four games. Which leads me to, I, I just don't buy completely they would have been useless exactly. on Saturday if they were that good on Sunday. I don't buy that. I don't, I don't buy so, it. I just don't. Yeah. And I know, and no. everybody is telling me, like, because I keep saying this and everybody keeps telling me, no, 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 like, they were wiped. I'm like, okay, 24 but. 24 hours does not get you from completely wiped to breadstick bait. Exactly. That's sorry. the thing. And I, and I totally agree with you. I definitely understand the rationale to sit Petkovic because she did make semis in Miami. That's a two-week tournament. And then turned around in Charleston. We saw her right. in Charleston. She was wiped. Like mentally, she was fried. With Kerber, though, yeah. I mean, she had 
nothing but time to chill out in Miami. She lost her. Yeah. Like, like yeah. you know, so the argument that Kerber like couldn't go and take the court. And this is a team, Kerber and Pekovic, who last year, Kerber, Pekovic won Charleston, hopped on a plane, flew to Australia, played in Australia. And won a match. You know, I mean, like, like it is possible. So, yeah, I just it's it's super weird. And I can't think that Rittner genuine that the Germans genuinely thought they had a chance in the doubles against Pavlyuchenkova and Vesnina. I was also confused why they didn't put Gerges in the doubles because she plays so much doubles lately. Exactly. All it, of it confused it's me. Just All was, of it just was, I don't understand any of it. It made no sense. Germany absolutely needed a point on day one. They should have put in Kerber. The fact that they didn't, I don't get it at all. I mean, this, like Rittner apparently said, or I, I don't remember who told me this, but uh, that Kerber, it took her six flights to get to Sochi. She arrived and... Um, was completely wiped. They had to actually, she and Petkovic had to stop in Germany to pick up their visas uh, to get to Russia. So it wasn't even like mm-hmm. they could go from North America directly to Russia. They had to go through Germany, um, all these sorts of things. But I don't know, still, for as much as these players travel and have had to do that turnaround before, I don't see why you can't sit there. And it wasn't that short a turnaround. They, Kerber played on Sunday and was going to play again on Saturday, like six days later. That's not that bad. Yeah. I don't know. I yeah. I, I full disclosure. I nominated Barbara Rittner for the drag segment of Slay Drag this week because I just thought this was terrible. But anyway, so Czechs go. Russia wins without Sharapova, without Makarova. Good win for them. Um, we were talking in the last, I guess, nine nine H about it being a really highly anticipated tie with Sharapova there, and Sharapova wasn't there, and the Russians managed to get through it anyway. So good for them. Good for Miskina, and it will be a. Czech Russia final in seven months. The seven month thing kills me with that cup. I just don't get how that is supposed to be a coherent and one year competition with that long of a delay. And also, if you think Jesus. about it, too, you're talking about Fed Cup final in November, which is going to come. Obviously, I think I think it's two weeks after Singapore. It's later this year. Yeah, it's later. It's like middle of November, so it's going to go two weeks after Singapore, which obviously every any player who commits to it is going to be committing to a shortened off season. On top of that, 2016 is an Olympic year. So you also have issues of qual- like Olympic qualification. You also have to play the Olympics. There's a whole scheduling clusterfuck waiting for everyone in 2016. I'm just very curious as to who commits. I mean, you know Kvitova is going to be there. You know the Czech squad will be there in full. But for yeah. the Russians, I'm genuine. I, I, if I'm Maria Sharapova. No way you're playing. No that. way I'm playing. There's just no way. I just don't see it happening. So that would be a pretty impressive thing if she actually agrees to play it. But if it's not, then, I mean, this looks like uh, yet another Czech title. Yet another devalued Fed Cup. Yeah. 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 Sadly, that's the case. And, I mean, it's lucky for Fed Cup that it is the Czechs who are kind of building this dynasty because they're a legit team. It's not like they're, like, a shitty team that, like, just happens to be winning because nobody else cares about Fed Cup but them. Like, Shidova gives him so much legitimacy. Exactly. And then plus yeah. having the depth with like Safarova and Apliskova behind her um, and also the doubles quality as well. Like that's a legit team that you know would probably win titles if everybody cared anyway. But yeah. um, it is it is a bit tough. Yeah. So the rest of Fed Cup uh, in the World Group playoffs, uh, the terminology for Fed Cup is weird. But in the World Group playoffs to get into World Group 1, Italy beat the U.S. 3-2. Serena Serena played, um, won both of her singles matches. The second one against Ronnie was a struggle, and she's never really struggled against Ronnie before ever. But then she lost with Allison Risk in the doubles decider, and the other two singles matches, the U.S. got trashed um, with 
Irani killing Davis and then Panetta routing McHale. Those ladies losing a combined five games in two matches. Thoughts on U.S. not being a world group, considering we have 11 women in the top 85, and Netherlands, who has zero, is in there. Yeah. (laughs) I just, it's brutal. I mean, world group two is going to be awesome. Given everything that happened uh, over the weekend. But yeah, I mean, Serena can't, you know, one man teams, one woman teams in Fed Cup Davis Cup rarely get too far and are rarely uh, consistently successful. So with Serena, that's just, you know, she did everything that she could, couldn't, couldn't get that doubles, that doubles point. She could only win two points herself anyway. Yeah, they were really picking on risk in that match too. They were just sort of exploiting. That was the thing with this, with this tie, like, they, I don't know how, what they thought their path to victory was, the U.S. Like, they did not bring anybody for doubles. Anybody. Their path to like victory those, was Serena and Venus. Right, but once Venus pulled out, like, which I would have brought, brought, which was last weekend, I would have brought a doubles player. I would have brought, like, a, a Cops Jones or a Spears or a Bethany or a Lisa, even. Yeah. Because those three those three other women, Mikhail, Risk, and Davis, have zero doubles chops. Like, none. My question so is yeah. why are you bringing risk to a clay court tie? I don't know. Like of all the American girls, I mean, I kind of get Davis a little bit. I mean, obviously she did what she did against Jeannie in Charleston, which was really, I mean, she played great, but that was also yeah. about Jeannie. Mikhail, sure, I guess. You couldn't take Madison because the agreement was not to take Madison. That was already been made uh, last month. Don't know what the whole deal with Sloan was, but I think that the fact that, you know, they had Serena and Venus pre-committed, yeah, they weren't worried about they it. They weren't worried about it, you know? And so, obviously, I think that when the other players get into situations where they have to negotiate with the USTA about their availability for Fed Cup, you know, they're kind of like, all right, well, if you get those two, then I'm not going to just fly over to Europe and sit on a bench just in case something happens. I'm going to kind of get my season underway and do what I need to do. So I'm not going to come, like, for nothing. So I understand, like, Keys and Stevens not being on tap for that. I would have brought Townsend, too. Townsend would have been great. Yeah, yeah, Townsend yeah. would have been an interesting call. Yeah, so but but again, it's it's tough because when that last minute withdrawal from Venus happens, you're you're asking for players to derail their training. Yeah. In order to it's not like they just like are sitting around waiting for the bat phone to ring and then they're like, "Okay, like I'll just hop on a plane." Like there's a reason why the other players that were available at a moment's notice were available at a moment's notice. No. And uh, and why others were not. And so, although I do, I w- I'm willing to bet that like a cop Jones or a Spears would have sure. immediately signed on to do it. Brangle. Bre- Brangle doesn't play doubles. No, but I'm just saying, like uh, in terms of like a Brangle taking a, br- I mean, why she not? Could've. Why not take a Brangle? Not, I don't think that Brangle would do it, um, given her relationship with USTA. But yeah, um, true. You know, like that's an option as well. Probably a better one than Mikhail Risk or Davis at this point, in terms of a singles player. Lepchenko was maybe not healthy. Yeah, I assume, I assume that yeah. Lepchenko wasn't healthy. She's been struggling with that. So, you know, I think that I think that MJ got a little hosed by by Venus's withdrawal, and Venus withdrew due to personal reasons. She didn't cite injury. Uh, somebody mentioned to me that on Twitter, although I never verified it or checked it, so take it with a grain of salt, that Venus had some sort of exhibition event this weekend. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure about that. I know she was doing stuff last weekend. Okay, maybe it was last weekend. So yeah, so I don't know. But but yeah, she cited personal reasons, um, not injury or illness or anything like that. So th- I think that was the big curveball. And then once that happened, it was like, well, how the hell is Serena? How the hell US is going? How the hell is the US going to get three points? And you're right, they should have brought a doubles player. 
because that's yeah. the third point that they needed. Let's talk about the main thing that happened at Ted Cup, though. I think everyone's probably been waiting through the first half hour-ish of the show for us to talk, Courtney, about Jeannie Bouchard's hand <laughs> and its lack of presence in Alexandra Dulgarou's hand. It was a went pretty quickly viralish within tennis, at least. At the draw ceremony on Friday in Montreal, uh, there is a, is a photo shoot they do with all the players who are going to play each other or projected to play each other during the tie. So first day opponents, Jeannie Bouchard and Alexandra Dulgarou were standing in front of the draw board for photographers. I think a photographer suggested that they, you know, shake each other's hands. Alex Dulgarou reaches her hand across the board towards Jeannie in a gesture of peace and camaraderie. And Jeannie says, you know, nah, and shoes the hand away. Dulgarou laughs and Jeannie smiles and the world goes nuts. Courtney, what was your first reaction to Jeannie doing this for the second time? Because she had done it previously when the Czech, when the Canadians hosted Slovakia. What, what do we make? What, where do you start with this one? Because there's, I think, a bunch of ways this, this can be taken. I mean, I didn't think it was that big of a deal at first. Because, again, she, this wasn't the first time she'd done it. She did it before. It became a big deal once Dolgru followed up on it and beat her. And then, obviously, had the, the post-match celebration, which was the, you know, the handshake fake out with the, the Romanian bench. And there's video of it and gifts of it. So it went viral. And then at that point, it becomes a thing. And it becomes this whole kind of commentary on sporting karma and sportsmanship. ATP players, WTA players were all weighing in. Everyone was on Team Dolgaru, obviously. I think, you know, and it was, it was, it kind of swelled from there. I thought it was hilarious just because, yeah, I mean, in the same way that when Jeannie did it the first time to Kukova? No, I think it was to I think it was to Chepalova. No, I'm pretty sure it was, or was it Kukova. I'm pretty sure it's okay. Kukova. Whichever there was like a young Slovakian, but um, yeah. but it wasn't Chepalova. Uh, okay. But when she did it the first time, in the same way that the last time I tuned into the tie to see if the snubbed uh, player could pull off the upset, in which case it's kind of funny. Um, but in yeah. that case. Genie won, uh, although it did go three sets, I think. So it was pretty close. This time, I also tuned in just to see if Dolguru would pull it off. And sure enough, you were watching a lot of this tie. I really was. Part of it was because I became initially obsessed with the Canadian commentators who were so hockey that it was amazing and really, really amusing. And also at times, it's very clear that they're still getting, they're still learning the ropes of the tennis. So I found it to be amusing. And then I just kind of stuck around for the rest of it. Um, so it, it became riveting. And then once the whole Dolguru win happened, it was like, perfect. It was payoff, really. But yeah, I mean, I think that it's just my initial reaction basically is this. One, it's a really weird thing to take a stand on, the ceremonial handshake, especially when it comes from like, oh, the phoniness. Oh, I don't want to be a phony. I'd be lying. I don't want to wish my opponent good luck. It's like you can just shake her hand and not say good luck. You can cross your fingers behind your back as you do it. That's the thing. Like, I just don't understand Jeannie's interpretation that somehow shaking someone's hand before a sporting event means in any way, like, I want you to beat me. That seems to be how she's reading it. And I just, what? I, like, I kind of always just thought like it was like t the, the pre- boxing touch gloves you know let's have yeah, just a like, fight and just like let's have a fair fight and basically. let's like have no one die or get injured like that, right. that that's the good luck i think we'll play clean yeah, yeah let's just it. play a good clean match and give the crowd something to enjoy like it just doesn't it isn't and good Jean luck i hope you beat me no one ever yeah. thinks that 
And I don't think Jeannie is somebody who people think plays dirty, even. I don't think no, Jeannie is somebody all. who's really ever accused of gamesmanship or anything otherwise untoward on court. I think she's a pretty, pretty jockish, you know, sportsman-like person for the most part. Yeah, I disagree. It's the weirdest thing to take a stand on and to be a rebel about. Because she's not like, you know, like a Golbus or a Fanini or someone who's out there bending rules or pushing the envelope ever she's really not yeah no so it's, yeah it's just it's just a bizarre one to take a stand on and like Dolguru said in her post-match comments like goes against the whole spirit of fed cup which i agree with also and it's like friendly competition between nations it's kind of insulting to romania <laughs> you imagine how it played in romania like you have this like they're young female athletes there representing their country and this canadian girl like refuses to shake hands with her Right. Like, that doesn't look good. And, like, you're the host? Like, yeah. you know, like you're the host country? Like, you are kind of supposed to be host? I mean, it, yeah, it, it's just kind of antithetical to the to the competition. But I, the weirdest thing about it is, like, you, you gain nothing by refusing to shake this kid's hand. You lose everything by yeah. refusing to shake this kid's hand. No one thinks you're cool for doing it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, there, there isn't, like, like with, like, Serena walking on the other side of the, the the net when she crosses after the, on that first changeover, it's kind of a badass move. And it's not, like, unsp- oh, sure. you know, and there's no downside to it. I mean, some people might look at it and say, oh, she's so arrogant and she wants the stage and it's the queen. But that's, like, a very small minority because she's not hurting anybody. She's just choosing to go the other way around the net. Who cares? But, like, th- with this one, it's, like, I don't really see anybody being, like, oh, man, that's fucking badass what she just said. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. who does this kid think she is? And in that way, again, that's why I just don't really understand it. Like, why would why do you take the stand here? If anything, do the ceremonial pregame handshake. And the, actually, the post-match handshake is the optional one. That's the one that you could be, like, screw you. I'm not shaking your hand because you're a jerk. But, like, the pre-one, that's just, like, let's not die on court. Cool? Cool. All right. Let's go play some tennis. <laughs> I totally agree. It's just the weirdest, weirdest piece of tennis to rebel against. It really is. I just, yeah. So, <laughs> Jeannie was roundly blasted for this. I mean, all these, every, I tweeted a few things about it happening because it is interesting and bizarre and uh outstanding in a not good way and just it it's funny out. too i mean the whole thing is like it's, it's entertaining video, it's funny it's entertaining i'm sorry it's fun. funny no it is so and genie was getting just ripped on twitter constantly and yeah i just don't think i i wonder if she'll ever do it again i hope not i hope she's learned her lesson on this because just pick your battles and why would you ever like go all in on the no handshake move i just don't get it. i don't get why she was because I'm guessing it might have come up since the Slovakia slub, snub the first time. Yeah. Why not learn from that? So yeah. the whole thing was ridiculous. Halep had some interesting words, which she sort of, which, this also shows how big Halep is. She's getting interviewed at the airport in Romania on her way to Stuttgart. Um, and she gets asked about this and she says, you know, sort of hedges a little bit, say, well, I don't want to comment. But then basically goes in and says, you know, it's just about how you were raised and educated and. I would never do that. So there's a little dispute. There's, there's some more. dispute about the about that translation, but um, it, the, the dispute the is not about the content, just about the, the sort of how del- how how much she danced around what she was saying. But she did imply all those things and debatable degrees of delicacy, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a. I I would think at least the people who were emailing me, I, th- I would think that there's a difference between saying like it depends on your education and how you were raised, and a difference between saying like. It, dep- it says something about your values. 
I don't think Which it was I like heard, values. Some people, some people wrote me and said it was more about values. I was like, okay, I don't know. I wasn't like investigating it. I don't speak <laughs> Romanian. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, the fact that she did weigh in on, but everybody's weighing in on it. Stakovsky like tweeted and said like, that's, fu- that's fucking ridiculous from Bouchard. Um, Col- Connor Nyland, former player from <laughs> Ireland was like team Dolgru. Like super, <laughs> you know, like Pauline Parmentier, Alize Cornet, uh, Annabelle Medina Garrigues, um just a bunch of people like just like being like this is this is really dumb and you know again you don't have to be out there to like make friends like genie doesn't have to no athlete either on the men's or women's tour should have to go out there and be fake and like you know be buddy buddy with everyone but at the same time i don't really understand the psychology of making your life worse because you would have to be really something special mentally if, like, you did all this and then you walked around the locker room as though nothing happened. Like, no, like you know what people think about you now, whether it's fans or coworkers, and you still – and that doesn't affect you. It has to affect her. She's 20 – you know? It would affect anyone. Jeannie being a young, pretty blonde with lots of hype was always going to be ripe to be a punching bag for people. People were going to – wanted reasons or were going to be ready to not like her for external factors that weren't really her own fault. And I just don't understand why she would draw all this attention on herself when she's playing so bad. Yeah. Like it's one thing to have all this swag and be like, no, I'm a rebel. I'm cool. When you're like double bageling people, but she went out there and continued to play terrible Yeah. and lost to Dolgru, Who's not a great player. Sorry, not right now. And then lost to Mitu, Who's a very shaky player who played well. Mitu has been very up and down in her career. She's had some great matches and then she looked awful against keys and Charleston last week. Yeah. Why would you draw all this attention on yourself when you're not ready to, to what, why are you writing checks that your forehand can't cash? But, but at the same time, isn't that so Jeannie Bouchard? Jeannie Bouchard does not back down. She doesn't have a B game. She doesn't back off. She's offense, offense, offense. And she's very in your face, both on the court and a little bit off the court. Not to say that she's nasty. I mean, like we said, I think in our last uh, last podcast in 99H. Like, she's great in press. I mean, she answers... She was great in Charleston, yeah, she, yeah. she answers the question straight up. She owns her slump, which a lot of players don't do. Um, and uh, so it's not like she's, like, a jerk in that way. But it just seems like if you're going to then go into to, to press conferences and say that you're struggling with external pressures and all eyes on you and all these sorts of things, that, like, this is not at all what you want people to be like asking you about or or drawing attention to you like if this doesn't happen Jeannie Bouchard just loses in Canada and who cares but now there's like an actual hook to broadcast the fact that she lost in Canada you know what I mean like yeah we did a post on it for SI because the whole thing was going viral. It was impossible to ignore. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what the what the thinking is from Jeannie Bouchard on this one. But, I mean, there's definitely – you can sense it. I mean, I was on Twitter all weekend uh, watching all this unfold. And, and uh, it's hard to escape the schadenfreude that seems to blanket so many of the, the negative critical tweets about um, her game, about her attitude, all these sorts of things right now. That's what I was saying. I think that people are just for – because of who she is and what she looks like and her hype, which has been significant and I think well-earned with her results with the two semifinal last year. I think it's totally legit hype. I don't think she was really – I don't think you can say she was extremely overhyped. I mean her results were – I mean especially if you compare her to like a Kornikova or some like classic example of – 
you know, publicity way exceeding major results. I don't think Jeannie's in that category at all. Yeah, I, I just think people are sure right to take her down. So, well, ho- hopefully she recovers in terms of her tennis because this is tough to watch a top player being so helpless against Andre and Mitu. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she looked at completely helpless against Lauren Davis as well in, in Charleston. And, yeah. you know, I think that she will turn it around. I just, even the decision to play Fed Cup was an interesting one. Because the decision was made, I mean, you know, she kind of did a complete 180 based off of what she said in Charleston. So, you know, she, instead of saying, she told us probably not going to play Fed Cup, and then she plays Fed Cup, and then pulls out of Stuttgart because she's playing Fed Cup, which is probably in the big scheme of things the right call, given the fact that why fly Stuttgart and play that type, that level of tennis and get blown off the court, because the Stuttgart, Stuttgart draw is brutal yeah, um, and unforgiving. So yeah, okay, now we sit and we train and, and get ready for Madrid, but... Um, you know, these two losses do, I, I don't know. I, I think that she comes out of that weekend, not as good as she came into it. Agreed. <laughs> no, going 0-2 at a home back up tie, never a positive. Yeah. Uh, especially when it's against not world-class opposition, really. So we're going to bring back Drag Slay for this week's show for episode 101 to talk about who got dragged and who slayed uh obviously the dragged person of the week was Janie Bouchard who we just went into in depth so we're going to skip that and keep it all positive on the sleigh front Courtney who is the one horse pulling the sleigh this week <laughs> I see what you did there I tried that was pretty good thank you yes so obviously yeah Jeannie got dragged and we're going to be merciful and not mention it again but uh the player who slayed this week is Tamea Baczynski, who uh, went 2-0 and, and and basically single-handedly almost uh, got Switzerland the win over Poland, Agnieszka Radwanska's Poland. And Baczynski was absolutely nails. And she she took a long break after that great run um, through Mexico and then India Wells. So she skipped Miami. So she went into this tie pretty well rested um and also somewhat under the radar i think people kind of forgot about tamea because she she kind of took the last three weeks off and everybody was talking about martina hingis who made her return to singles for the first time since 2007 uh got the nomination played it pretty much a disaster i I wouldn't say that yeah i would uh complete disaster no idea (laughs) and no understanding as to why the swiss captain even put her in uh, to play singles when she is a great doubles player. And you have to think, okay, Tamea is going to get us two points in singles. We're going to need a third point in doubles. Why don't we play Martina Hingis and anyone? And that's probably going to be a pretty good team. So I find it could be completely ridiculous that Martina Hingis played two singles rubbers. He lost to Agnieszka Radvanska, 6-4, 6 love. And again, I know this is about Baczynski, but I just got to get this off my chest about the <laughs> singles thing. Um, lost to Agnieszka Radvanska, got bageled, and then lost in three sets after holding a pretty significant lead over Ursula Radvanska, losing 4-6, 7-5, 6-1. Um, yeah, she was up 5-2 in the second. Exactly. So, And in the course of that match, seemed to get injured, so was unavailable for the doubles, which brings me back to Baczynski who teamed up with Victoria Golubich and beat Redvanska Rosolska 2-6-6-4-9-7 in the third set. Tamea Baczynski, she's a real thing. It's all happening for her. It's incredible. It's a great story. You can't help but like be super happy for her. And uh, Switzerland's in World Group 1, and which is great because you have to assume that next year or whatever, they can bring in a Benchich. You have a Benchich-Baczynski-Hingis 
That's team, legit. That is they a legit. Win. They could win. They could win the whole thing, and that's legit. That's pretty cool. But Chinsky, this feels like a long-term Slay Award. We, I don't know. We haven't really mm-hmm. gone to Lachinsky too much. That's true. On the show, but she has been slaying since Wuhan, really. Yeah. When she made the semis there, and just been great, playing absolutely well. I've, we all we've talked about her story a little bit in terms of her backstory with her father being feeling pressure to play tennis and the sort of feeling that she didn't have a choice and took quit the sport essentially. And came back really on her own terms. This is a super, super Cliff Notes version of it. Um, yeah, she's she's done great. And the sort of variety she plays with, she can definitely do well in clay. We got asked by somebody on Twitter who a friendship in Dark Horse would be. I would pick Baczynski. She's pretty good on clay. Women's side is open. There's no real... If the draw falls apart, I could totally see Baczynski making it to the semis or final. Even, and she can even pull out a couple big wins of her own. I totally think she can. She's, I mean, the amount of... I don't want to say swagger, but the amount of belief it takes to sustain a 6-1-6-1 win over a player with the reputation of Radvanska on the road in Fed Cup. And I don't—I know Radvanska wasn't is playing badly now, but to be able to see that through is huge. Yep. So I say Baczynski, look out for her. She's good on clay and grass. There's no reason she can't do well. Uh, she's okay. She's not bad on grass. Um, there's no reason she can't do well all summer. And really solidify her spot as a Singapore player. I yeah. really think she's at that level this year. So, yeah. good on her. Way to slay, Tamea. Way to slay, Tamea. Slay. Uh. I wish I was a way. Yeah. More like Tim Slayer. Oh, right? Jesus. Yeah, yeah not no. great. So, that was Drag Slay. Uh, way to slay, Tamea. And we'll try to rub it in more, Jeannie. But, boy, did you get dragged. By everybody. Everybody. <laughs> We're going to give out a second drag award this week, Courtney. I think it would probably have to go to the ACP firm who was issuing essentially cease and desist orders to fans putting up gifts on Twitter. Happened earlier in the week as we were on our way back from Charleston, I guess. At least I was. ATP sending messages to giffers like Robin VC and Renaissance and other people, or maybe just the two of them, at least for making gifts which are moving pictures of images from tennis broadcasts uh this seems to help no one and is bad do you agree i do agree i think that it's a bit more nuanced than that but it's it's always a tough thing with with i call them gifts because i just cannot call them gifs i'm sorry i, I know that that's Thank how you. they're pronounced but gif to me is a peanut butter gift to me are these lovely little images that are just such a boon to sports fans um, because they isolate very tiny moments, moments that are often overlooked. And because they're so isolated, you can kind of pull them out of their context and use them in different ways. They are communicative in uh, the same way that words are or pictures and if you or any other sort of meme on the Internet. And uh, obviously those gifts are in a very technical sense, copyright infringement. They are using ATP owned media, which is, you know, ATP broadcast, like a tennis TV broadcast that you see. Mm-hmm. ATP has the rights to that, to the extent that you're isolating a two second slot from there. So they created it. They yeah. created it. They own the rights to it. From the ATP's media perspective, I understand what they're trying to do here. They want to protect the value of their product. You know, when people do entire gifts of a hot shot and beat the ATP to it, and then the ATP puts up a hot shot and nobody clicks on it because everybody already saw the GIF or has the GIF. Like, I understand what they're trying to do in terms of protecting their product. That being said, 
um, there is a very, very, very strong argument, in my opinion, for the fact that gifts are fair use. They're part of the fair use exception to the Copyright Act, which is that they are transformative. They are not a straight up. To me, there's I absolutely understand, even though I hate it. But I totally understand ATP going through YouTube and sending cease and desist letters to people who create highlight videos. I get it because they actually are in that space as well. ATP produces their own highlight videos. And in the highlight videos, you're not, not there's a, a softer argument, not as compelling of an argument, in my opinion, that they are transformative. You are still taking copyrighted work. You're just like condensing things into a highlight reel. So I understand that a little bit more. I still hope the ATP doesn't do that because the highlight reels are awesome. They're great. It allows fans to catch up on matches that they missed. Um, a lot of times they're faster than what ATP Media puts up. They're more thorough, et cetera, et cetera. But with, ex- with respect to gifts, a very good example is if you saw – we'll go back to Jeannie. Sorry, Jeannie. But if you saw one of the, the great gifts of the weekend, which was um, created by our good friend Robin VC on Twitter, um, who creates a lot of the, just the best gifts in the Twitter community. We, have, we just owe a debt to her. Um, a prodigy. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, she, she, she excerpted the video. This doesn't have anything to do with ATP because it's not ATP media. But um, the video of Jeannie like snubbing Dolguru's handshake. And instead of um, Dolguru's hand be ext- being extended to Jeannie and then Jeannie kind of slapping it away, uh, Robin put an image of a humble pie in Dolguru's yeah. hand so that it looks like she's offering Jeannie the humble pie and Jeannie's like, no thanks. <laughs> that is, by definition, transformative. That whole thing means something completely different than what it originally did. And and there's so there's just a great argument that they are not copyright infringement. The problem is in these situations, you don't litigate stuff like this. Like, you know, nobody spends the money to litigate over gifts. And so therefore, the, the big companies, and this isn't just in tennis, this is a lot of large sports media companies that go after gift makers. They, they can send these cease and desist letters and... You know, and be scary because no one can actually no one will actually uh, call them on it effectively. But Ben, I mean, so that's the legal standpoint of side of things that I just wanted to make clear, because sometimes I feel like people don't realize or don't respect that copyright law is a thing. Um, So people do need to realize that that is an issue. But I feel like you maybe might want to articulate the reasons why this is just irrespective of the law bad idea genes for the ATP. Well, I did talk to somebody at the ATP about this eventually during the week. They did get back to me. And they said... It took a little while. It took a while. And they said eventually their sort of take was that they had more of an issue. And I didn't look specifically at the gifts. I don't know what they were because I got taken down. Other ones that Robin and Renaissance had flagged. But they were more concerned about infringements of in-point action, like shots during play. And that the sort of reaction shot things weren't as problematic, but they didn't want people infringing on the action because it would possibly devalue the product to the rights holders who are paying to broadcast these things, Tennis Channel, whoever else around the world, which, okay. But in general, like, gifts just help tennis so much for break, being, like, viral, like we said, like the Jeannie Bouchard thing, <laughs> to keep bringing her up over and over again. Sorry, like, Jeannie. That, that was a thing because it was a gif and, like, this immediately encapsulatable thing that you could take and put anywhere, and it made sense in context. Things that happened before, like in Miami, the, the amazing Maria Sharapova glare at Gavrilova. Like, those are sort of things that you can put in tennis and that can break out. GIFs are, are packageable, little, very portable things on the internet 
that can do big things, and tennis just should not be fighting with publicity. I feel the same way about highlight videos, even though I understand more that's infringement, especially the ones that come up now, they're like half an hour long. Right. I think um, highlight videos are too long. If you're if you're going over yeah. seven minutes, you've gone too long. I, I completely agree with that. At the same time, especially if like the French French Open takes all of them down. They're they're the strictest of the rights holders about that, or the you know, entities, I guess, about that. Having those things out there is just great for making people be deeper fans of it. I just don't think that anybody's gonna be like, huh, should I watch you know, this match between these two players, nah, I'll wait for some gifts to come out instead. I just don't think that, I don't think really gifts are demonstrably losing money. If anything, they deepen passion. Same thing for YouTube highlights. Like, for me, for, like, here's a non-tennis example, for, like, Eurovision, pretty much every Eurovision performance of the past 60 years is on YouTube and easily searchable and findable, and it lets you sort of delve into this hole of it and get sucked in in a way that made me a bigger Eurovision fan, and now I won't shut up about it. Right. And it wouldn't have been possible without YouTube, really, and all that stuff being out there. I think that, yeah. Tennis should, tennis should understand that. Tennis needs to understand that, and tennis needs to understand that the future is this fan base that loves Twitter, that loves GIFs and memes. And these are, the, if you pull this away, you are alienating a younger fan base. You're alien- yeah. alienating people who call you it, need. who need it and want it. And maybe right now, maybe a lot of them are college students or um, high school students or people who are in situations where, yeah, they can't afford a tennis TV subscription or they don't even have a TV or, you know, don't care. You know, they're streaming, they're pirating, they're doing all these things that, yes, they suck a little bit of the money out of tennis. But ideally, you create people who love the tent, who love the sport so much that when it gets to the point where they do have the resources and the means, they do actually give back and they become some of your most important fans. They're your future. They are your future. And this this action is just it. It just reeks of once again, tennis just not understanding how to market itself. When Novak Djokovic hits a shitty overhead into the net and somebody takes a gif of that an in point video turns it into a gif or a vine and adds like a sad trombone tr- sad trombone that's awesome that's pretty funny that's just that's just good stuff and it cuts through the noise of just tennis i mean if you want to watch forehands and backhands you can watch forehands and backhands it's fine but you also need that other arm of the marketing that is um fun and cool and interesting and quirky and i feel like in american sports people definitely get that i mean i think foot in european football people get it because gifting in in football is definitely a very real thing but i've heard epl cracks down on epl cracks down, but there is like you know kind of a culture of it trying to do okay. it right you know what i mean i mean people crack down and i think who's the best at it is it NBA, nhl or nba NHL's- they're both pretty good. Yeah, NHL and NBA. I feel like MLB is the one that cracks down yeah. a little bit more. Well, they, have, they have this whole sense that, like, well, MLB especially has its, a lot of its own video on its own site that's pretty developed. But, like, you have to sort of, I think, and this is all us being, you know, not the lawyers on behalf of these parties, um, I think you should embrace the sort of Web 2.0 nature of user-created organicness. You can't especially fight when it. it. To, like, yeah, especially when it comes to YouTube. For like the French Open, yeah. like don't just think no, no, no. We have certain videos on our website, so that's enough. Yep. No, just let it grow because it's not 
hurting you. It's really not. Fact, when you, yeah. when, now, I understand. I totally understand policing like pirated streams of live streams of events. Sure. I totally get cracking down on that. That can and should happen probably. But otherwise, nah. I agree. You know, I hope that the WTA doesn't follow suit. I would think that they wouldn't because I think that, you know, WTA and ATP are in different mindsets, I suppose, in terms of their product. I think that the ATP is probably in a little bit more in a, in a protection mode in terms of protecting and kind of like fine tuning and I don't know, their product, whereas WTA is like, yes, please, like, you know, talk about yeah. us, you know, like, yeah. please, like, let that Sharapova gift go viral. Like, you know, yeah. like people are talking. Let the photo of us sitting in Singapore. Yeah. Looking bitchy go viral. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, like, let's do it, you know, and, and, and I think that they're very smart in how they do that. But, you know, hopefully everybody just kind of embraces it. And, and there, there's a point of the part of me that do, does wonder how much of it is a difference of because the ATP, especially from the marketing and communication side has become a little bit more, um, like Europe centric. Yeah, I was thinking that too. So the, it, it's WTA a, is more American organization. Exactly, WTA is yeah. a little bit more American or North American. Uh, mm-hmm. Counting Canada, obviously, there's a lot of Canadians. Um, but or at least one. <laughs> at least one, but there are there are a good number of Canadians uh, within WTA. But uh, yeah, I, I do wonder a little bit if, if if that's maybe the disconnect that I get with the ATP sometimes. It's just that a lot of it is is a very Euro centric way of looking at properties of marketing of and just in terms of internal demographics wta is definitely younger too you think so younger younger staff yeah totally oh you mean like the people who work there yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, not in terms of fan base really but yeah maybe fan base too but i think more in terms of their staff and their leaders they're younger so yep yeah it's probably helpful that like you know wta deals and the players like in terms of like, you know, you're having teenagers, more teenagers and young players in the locker room regularly than on the ATP side. So it just kind of has a younger feel. Yeah. Right. Like ima- you have to talk about imagine. selfies and you have to talk about Bieber. And I don't know. It's a different feel on the WTA side. So maybe they're a little bit more. I can imagine Stacey saying like, you girls keep me young. <laughs> I could never see like Chris Kermode saying. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> so, so there we go. Let's leave it at that because ish. Thank you very much for listening to episode 101 of our show. Happy to be with you once again. Uh, to stay with us when we're when you're not listening to us directly, you can follow us uh, on Twitter, NCR underscore tennis. You can also follow each of us individually on Twitter at 40 Deuce Twits and at Ben Rothenberg. Uh, you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also subscribe to our show and get new episodes automatically through rss feeds through podcasting apps through itunes all sorts of great ways and if you leave us reviews and rate us and write reviews on itunes we think that's pretty cool as well uh courtney we're gonna end with our rant rave segment is there anything that you think is pretty cool right now or is there anything that you're feeling cool as in cold about (laughs) Um, well, I already ranted about Martina Hingis playing singles, so otherwise that would have been my rant again. You, the, the Hingo inspires <laughs> such rage in you. I don't know if people sense this, but it's a pattern. If you go back, Hingis, yeah, irks you. She, no, it's not, the, well, it's not that she the she irks me. The comeback me. irks me. The comeback irks me. The comeback irks me. The, the, the attempt to, yeah, the attempt to turn her into like, that somehow she could like win in the singles game is like ridiculous to me. Ridiculous. She was up a set in 5-2 on Ula. And she lost. Okay. <laughs> so, 
scoreboard. Anyways, um, yeah. So otherwise, I've already put that rant to bed. No, my rave for this week is if you follow me on Twitter, which I assume that most listeners do. I don't know. Maybe that's a weird assumption, but I don't know. If you follow me on Twitter, you know that every once in a while I go through, especially after long trips, I go through kind of like a tweet link binge. I love those, by the way. Yeah, where I'm just like tweet. I'm just like literally sitting at my computer and reading things that I've been saving and that I didn't have time to read during tournaments or whatever and just tweeting out the ones that I really, really like. I just wanted to give a rave to what has become over the years my go-to read when it comes to cinema and film, which is Film Crit Hulk, who is on Twitter, at Film Crit Hulk, who is basically a guy who's in the movie industry. Don't know who he is still. I don't I don't know who he is. But he's in the movie industry in terms of like a screenwriter um, and also just making movies. And he writes these incredible essays, incredible essays, like 10 to 15,000 word essays about specific movies and his kind of thoughts about them and how they relate to broader issues in society or in film and all these sorts of things and he writes them in all caps in the voice of the hulk because why not because why not and it's amazing because he's he's incredibly smart i don't always agree with you know obviously his takes on certain movies but i do generally find myself agreeing but it's not even about that and what i really like about what he does and the thing that i and it makes me think about kind of what I do as a writer and what I wish there was more freedom to do um, across the board is that like right now, if a movie comes out or a TV show comes out or a match happens, whatever it is, there's immediate um, time pressure to get something up, right? It, it, yeah. We talked about hot take culture and things like that, but you have to talk about it right away because if you don't talk about it right away, then like the, the window closes and you never, nobody ever cares anymore. Like that's the constant pressure that you feel, if you, especially if you write on the web. And what Film Crit Hulk does um, is that he kind of will write about a movie a year after it came out or eight months after it came out. Um, it's not really a review column in the, in the traditional sense of like the movie came out on Friday. There's a review on Monday sort of situation. He really thinks about it. He mulls over it. He really like crafts these essays. I mean, they are long and they are dense reads. Very smart. But um, I'm kind of jealous of him in a way because I think that that's just such an amazing luxury that so many writers no longer have especially when you're we're talking about reacting to pop culture is that like you're under time pressure to get an opinion out and you just don't have the time to just sit and ruminate anymore and to Definitely. really and to really go and go deep on a topic so I really love film crit hulk for that his essays are incredibly sporadic they're posted on a website called badassdigest.com um, and I'll post a link or tweet out the link to it. He's also on Twitter at Film Crit Hulk, and he's also very funny. But he just posted, and I've been waiting for it because I knew he was working on it. He just posted his essay on Birdman because he did not like Birdman, and I did not like Birdman. So I've been waiting for this to come out, and it was, as expected, so interesting. And I just think that he brings up all these topics that are just they're just great to think about just ideas of what is art and the nature of art and what films are trying to do. And what I really like about him is that he doesn't just say like, Oh, this movie was like poorly acted or the script was shit or the director was crap. He tries to find like, okay, this is a movie. What can we learn from it regardless of good or bad? What, what can we take away from it? So there's purpose to what he's trying to write. Anyways, 
he makes me incredibly happy and I want more people to read him. So film crit Hulk rave love Birdman sucked. <laughs> there you go. I still haven't seen Birdman. I feel like I should. Birdman Probably. didn't suck. It, it's a great movie. Birdman is a great movie. It's total just... turnabout here. No, wow. No, 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 no. It's just, <laughs> it's a great movie. It is not the best movie of the year. It's a great movie, but it's not the best movie of the year was, for very, was... very basic, not basic reason, reasons, very interesting reasons. But we remember your, your, your rant about boyhood not winning, but was, was he talking about that too? Did he talk about boyhood in the, in the, his essay? No, I don't, I don't know if he's actually ever done a boyhood essay, but no, it was just about, about Birdman as a concept, as a conceit, as this movie that purports to be about how fucked up Hollywood is because everybody wants to make superhero movies and everybody forgets about the real artists. But really, it's just such a cynical movie and it falls into the same traps that it excoriates that he just doesn't really. It's kind of interesting what he how he can what he concludes uh, in Yorito's trying to say in Birdman. But I agree with him. Like, I didn't like it because it was I walked away finding it incredibly cynical and I didn't, I personally don't actually like that. As much of a jerk and as an, as an asshole as I am, like, I'm actually a pretty hopeful human being. I like to think that things can be better and there are good things. So when things are just straight up like, oh, wow, this movie is based around an asshole who's just an asshole, I don't like that. <laughs> There's no arc for but, me. By the way, big points for the first NCR usage of excoriates, I believe. <laughs> Nicely done there. No worries. Uh, so I have a rave about, I was also catching up on things, but I don't do the quite as much, like, backlog tweeting as you do which i am envious of because i think it works really well i was catching on podcasts which i know will make you happy after your episode 100 rant and one i was getting back to was coverville which you have talked about before in a rant about their you know songs you love to hate episode or just maybe just hate because they were so bad and i listened to one that came out on march 5th about girl groups for covers of stuff for apparently billboard did like a list of the top 40 girl group songs of all time just by sales or by a chart position or something like that and the show is mostly really good like the first block of the show which was essentially songs 40 through 37 was unbelievable and then weirdly it kind of like tailed out after that so it peaked early which i wasn't expecting but anyway solid episode recommend what i was sad about though is that in the top 40 and in the show because they only did about like 20 of the top 40 on the on the podcast um my favorite girl group song of all time was not there. Oh. And that is, because it just didn't make it apparently. And that is a random one, which you probably would not be guessing, is Leader of the Pack by the Shangri-Las. That's a great song. It didn't uh, yeah, make it? It didn't make it. This song is amazing. For those of you who don't know it, it's from a, from a genre that was really popular like in the 50s and 60s, especially called like teen tra- tragedy or... Uh, about like people like basically like teenagers dying in various ways. Some people called like the records um, splatter platters, which I enjoy. That's great. It's tremendous. So this song did not make it, and I think this song is incredible because it is the most overdramatic thing like ever recorded and marketed as a song. It's like so much immediate melodrama. I feel like Taylor Dane should have done a cover of it at some point. Oh, tell it, it to my that... heart, Ben. <laughs> it is. It is that like invested. And while I was looking into it looking into this song um because i was going back and making sure that yes it did hit number one and stuff and it probably had a logist realistic shot at making this list um there were some bad covers of this song out there including one by twisted sister which 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 changes like the narrator to the leader from the girl it doesn't work at all and another cover that was like for a tv show by hillary duff which was also offensive so i just want to celebrate this song i think it's so great i'll make it our outro 
And I'll probably not have spoilers in it, but just know that it's a dramatical, plot-heavy song. And really good. And so that's my rant slash... My rave and slash rant that it wasn't in the top 40. Because it should be. People should go out there and buy it now. Buy so music, people. Yeah. Buy mu- buy old music, too. Buy right old now. music. Just buy buy your fucking music. Do not list your music on Spotify. Don't make me make this my rant again. I cannot oh. deal. I cannot deal with it. Yeah. I'm never. I'm not a stream person. I never use a Spotify or the, uh, uh, whatever, other, Pandora. Like I, it's fine to use the services in my opinion, but like recognize that okay, like you want to dabble and you want to see like, do I like this song or do I like this album? Guess what? If you have listened to it like five times, it's time to just buy the album. But I think that that's my issue with like, I have more of an issue with Spotify than Pandora. Because at least Pandora, like, there's, like, there's it's a different service, right? They're, it's, like, radio station. They're trying to, you know, piece together songs for you. They're curating. Yeah, bit, exactly. Yeah. But whereas, like, Spotify is just basically having an access, you know, to a huge database of music that you aren't actually paying for that much. And totally unrelated, but there's this AV Club post about how Portishead, like, there was a few tweets from the guy from Portishead yeah. who said that, Let's see, 34 million streams, income after tax that he received via Apple, YouTube, and Spotify was 1,700 pounds. That's not great. That's not great. So, like, buy albums. Also, I'm shocked they hit 34 million streams for Portishead. Good for Portishead. I would have picked the under on that. Portishead, epic. That's like like Gen X booty music is Portishead. And also crying music, which explains a lot about Generation X, of which I am a part of. (laughs) That our booty music is the same as our depression music. <laughs> I have noticed that about you. So, as, or, as epic as Portishead is, I don't think it's, it's as epic as Leader of the Pack. It just can't be. So I'm going to leave you with that. We'll see you guys next time for episode 102. Keep sending questions. We like those. Bye, guys. Auf Wiedersehen. Oh, no.